A few weeks ago, I was playing on my smartphone, as you do, a magnificent instrument of distraction called an iPhone, and I discovered, playing around in the App Store, that there is a chess playing app. Are you familiar? Don't go there. Um, my experience was not positive. And I remembered that my dad taught me to play chess, and I hadn't played chess in a very long time since I was probably in elementary school. So I downloaded this little app, and it immediately told me that I could kind of pick my challenge. I could play against the computer or I could play against another human being. So I chose to challenge some guy from Mexico to a chess match. And I'm being generous. About 95 seconds later, it was over <laughs> with him as the victor. He beat me so badly, I didn't realize I'd lost until the computer said, checkmate. And it, it's really embarrassing. I had to study the screen for 10 seconds to realize that it was right. I thought there was some kind of software glitch. I thought I still had a move. I was done. He had actually kind of done a pincer movement and had me really, whatever I did, two different pieces could kill my king. Okay? And then he invited me to play again. I declined found some other guy from somewhere in the Midwest, got thrashed even faster, probably because my confidence was shaken. And after about six games, I decided to let the app just sit there on the phone. It taunts me now, saying, you don't know how to play chess. I discovered that I know the rules of chess, but I clearly don't know how to play chess. There's a big difference. That's what, um, that's what some psychologists call the Dunning-Kruger effect, where as a novice, you think that you're better at something than you turn out to be. You ever had this experience? Okay. You're going to take up a hobby. You're going to try a new job. You're going to, you saw some guy on YouTube make something amazing out of a block of wood in about six minutes. So you excitedly go and buy all the stuff and throw all the stuff away about two hours later in frustration. Right? That haunts people, and I discovered I wasn't a good chess player, and what it boiled down to was I couldn't see more than one move ahead. I, frankly, I couldn't even see. Like, he would move, and I had no idea why. That's a bad sign, right? Like, why would he do that? Oh, because he won. That's why he did that. <laughs> Here's my point. We're, in, we're today in the book of Acts in chapter 13. If you don't have your Bible, I'd love for you to look around quickly and find one near you because we're going to read most of one chapter and you will be greatly helped if you have a Bible in front of you. There should be one beneath you, a, a chair near you. Feel free to ask your neighbor. I promise you it'll go better if you have your Bible open. Acts chapter 13 proves to me that God is a magnificent chess player because he doesn't see a move ahead. He sees the end from the very beginning. The guy in Mexico, he knew exactly what he was doing. I had no idea what he was doing, and that's why it went so quickly. I couldn't see three moves ahead. I couldn't see one move ahead. I couldn't tell what I was supposed to do in the next second. God knows everything from the beginning. We can't possibly account for how vast his knowledge is. On a personal note, before we dive into this story, whatever you're going through, you may feel that God is absent and far from you and out of moves to help you, and he's not. 
God sees the end from the beginning, so whatever you're in, you, can under, you should know with confidence. And that's why the Bible tells us all of these stories to know that God already has a purpose in mind. You may not see it. If you were told about it, you may not completely understand it or even agree with it. But believe me, He is at work doing good things. And Acts chapter 13 and the entire book of Acts is one long historical account of God the chess master moving everything into place just as he chose. He had started actually centuries, thousands of years earlier. He actually started in a big way. He did big work on the blank pages in your Bible between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Have you noticed there's about two little blank pages between the last book in the Old Testament and the Gospel of Matthew that starts the New Testament? In those two little pages, 400 years went by. People call that the period of silence. God was silent. He wasn't speaking. He wasn't writing Scripture anymore. But believe me, He was active. And hang with me. There's going to be some historical pieces I have to tell you of things that happened a long time ago in faraway lands, but I promise you it all contributes to something that is going to really encourage you if you can hang with me. Deal? Forewarned is fair, whatever the saying is, I can't talk suddenly. Forewarned is something like that, okay? Let's pray it goes better in the immediate future, all right? In those 400 years, in those blank pages, empire led to empire. The Persians fell and were replaced by the Greeks. The Greeks fell and were replaced by the Romans. And what that produced is the world of Jesus. Very, very different from our own. The Greeks had given the world a single language, the Romans had then conquered that empire and spread themselves out and built roads so magnificent that some are still used today. They had also established what is called the Pax Romana, the Roman peace, wherein all of these subjects from all of these different nations and tribes that had been subdued by Rome were given freedom and security and even freedom of religion. So long as they didn't disturb Rome, so long as they didn't try to subvert the empire, everyone was free to worship God according to their own understanding. God was at work in Israel too. Israel had been battered around by different empires for years, and in their dispersion, as they were scattered by these empires, for the first time in a very, very long time, the nation of Israel took God seriously. And since they couldn't worship in their temple, wherever they were scattered, they started little houses of worship that are still with us today. In fact, there's one about two miles from here west on Warner Avenue. You know what I'm talking about? They started the, the synagogue. So what you had in a synagogue was something magnificent. You had people not only from Israel, but from other nations coming in. And for the first time in history, the Hebrew Scriptures could actually be read in a common language because something amazing had happened. The Jews revered their Hebrew Scriptures, what we call the Old Testament. But in that time, in those little blank pages, they were translated into Greek which of course would have been considered a pagan tongue that had nothing to do with them. But God the chess player had arranged everything. If you're following along with me, what had happened is the Roman Empire had established peace, security, comfort, stability, and travel. The Greeks given the world a common language, and for the first time, everyone in this great big empire could actually, if they chose to, go to a synagogue 
and hear the Hebrew Scriptures read for the first time in a language that everybody understood. God had also worked in the nation of Israel. All this persecution had actually make, made them take God serious, and their lives were markedly different from the pagan corruption and death and hedonism that was consuming the Roman Empire all around them. The chess player was at work. That's why it says in Galatians that God sent Jesus in the fullness of time. God didn't send Jesus at a random time. He didn't shrug his shoulders up in heaven saying, we might as well do it now. He was working everything out together perfectly so that a group of frightened followers, having become convinced that Jesus had actually risen from the dead, could make his story, his life, his message explode everywhere quickly. And that is the story of the book of Acts. Acts chapter 1, verse 8, are the words of Jesus to those disciples who had been previously frightened and locked away for fear that the same people and machinery that had killed Jesus was now going to kill them. Jesus made this promise to them and predicted their life. He said to those disciples, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses. You ever had to give witness, ever become a witness? I have, and it's, it's actually, if you don't lie, it's not hard. <laughs> Incredibly complicated if you lie. They're pretty good at figuring that out. I've seen that happen too. Seen it, didn't do it, saw it, okay? <laughs> All they want to know from a witness is, what did you see and hear? They don't want your opinion. They don't want you to settle it. They don't want you to weigh in on what you think should be done. They just want to know, what did you see and hear? Jesus is saying something important to the first disciples and to these disciples here at Crosspoint on this corner. We are to be his witnesses. We are to tell people once we've actually met him, as they did, and we're convinced in a personal relationship that he's real and he loves us and he forgives sin and he gives eternal life, then we are to be his witnesses. We are to tell people what we've seen and what we've heard. And here's the outline of the book of Acts. Jesus said, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea. That's the first seven chapters of the book of Acts. You're going to start in the capital city where you're living now, and you're going to spread out through the region and tell people about me. Jesus said, you'll also do that in Samaria. That would have been an eyebrow raiser because Jews were raised from infancy to hate the Samaritans. For all kinds of reasons I don't have time to explain, they disdained the Samaritans, considered them traitors and backstabbers and religious nonsense believers. They hated them. But you can read in Acts chapter 8 how the message of Jesus arrived to the Samaritans and completely turned them around. And then he said, you're going to go from Jerusalem all the way to the end of the earth. You're going to go everywhere. You're not going to stay local. You're going to go global. And what we read in the book of Acts from Acts chapter 13 to from Acts chapter 9, actually from the salvation of a former Pharisee named Saul that you know as the Apostle Paul, all the way to the end of chapter 28, the gospel and the story of Jesus spread everywhere in the Roman Empire, always beginning in the synagogue. I want you to read the hinge point when it goes global with me in Acts chapter 13. At this point, from chapter 9, God has literally knocked a Pharisee named Saul off his high horse. 
Saul thought Jesus was an imposter. He thought it was a lie. He thought it was sent to subvert and destroy the faith of the people he loved. But he met Jesus on the road to Damascus and had this conversation with him. Jesus said to Saul, 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 why are you persecuting me? And Saul asked the only smart question in that situation. He said, who are you, Lord? He was blind. He was cowering in the dirt. Someone bigger than him was trying to get his attention, and he asked the right question. Who are you, Lord? And Jesus said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. And that was it. Paul never looked back. Many times in my following Jesus, I've looked back and I've wondered and I've doubted. Paul apparently never did. He had a straight line up kind of relationship with Jesus. Once he knew it was real, it wasn't a lie, there actually was one that God had promised in the Hebrew Scriptures that Paul knew so well, and God had kept all of his promises in Jesus, and Jesus was actually the one. He spent the rest of his life risking it, going to prison, taking beatings once at least, being left for dead under a pile of rocks so that everyone in the ends of the earth would know that he was actually the one God had promised. That's the heart of the Christian faith, and the hinge of when that happens is in Acts chapter 13. Now, I'm going to have to beg your patience because I'm talking as fast as I can. Can you tell? This is a very Jewish sermon you're going to hear. Paul is going to go straight into a Jewish synagogue, and he is going to run right through their history. It's going to be long ago and far away to us. I'm going to try to talk you through it, but hang in there. It's not necessarily the most accessible stuff in the world because it's not our history. And if you're not very familiar with your Bible, you're going to read some events that happened a long time ago that you're not familiar with. But he's building to a point that is incredibly relevant to you and to our church. Here's how it happened. Acts 13. Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers... Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manan, a member of the court of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. And that's how it happened. In the middle of the life of a local church, in the middle of worship, the Holy Spirit, who has the ends of the world in mind, because God sees the end from the beginning, and He has the nations in view from the very start, says, take two of your men and send them out. I have work for them. And they sailed off, and they made a first trip, which are in verses 4 to 12, but I want you to see what happened in verse 13. Now, Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga and Pamphylia. And John left them and returned to Jerusalem. But they went on from Perga and came to Antioch and Pisidia. Is that enough foreign names for you yet? Okay. They're far from home. They're in other lands. But they're going to go to a very familiar place. On the Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue and sat down. After the reading from the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them saying, Brothers, If you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. What a setup. See, this is the way the synagogue worked. When a respected teacher was recognized in their midst, this happened to Jesus at Nazareth. The reading was made, and if someone qualified who understood the Scriptures was present to explain it to the people, someone stood up and explained it. 
I'm doing that in that very same tradition. We're reading the Scriptures, and I'm doing the best I can with God's help to explain them to you. And they said, gentlemen, if you have anything to share with the congregation, please do. Here goes Paul. Ready for their history? So Paul stood up and motioning with his hands said, men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. Now the God-fearers were Gentiles who were in that synagogue who moved by Israel's faith were interested in it. These were Gentiles who were going to the Jewish synagogue to hear the Hebrew Scriptures read to them in Greek. I mean, is God good or what? They're so moved by how different their lives, their marriages, their family, their prosperity is with all that they've been through that they're interested. That's why they're called God-fearers. They're converts to Judaism. And Paul knows he's got a mixed congregation here, so he addresses them both, Israel and those who fear God. Listen, the God of this people Israel chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt, and with uplifted arm, he led them out of it. Remember who he used to get Israel out of Egypt, humanly speaking? That man's name was Moses. And for about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. I love how real the Bible is. God's not a distant God. He is a relatable God. He is a person who desires to have relationship with you. And when you're not obedient, guess what God is capable of doing? Putting up with you. Okay? It's real. It's a person. He loves you. And after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. All this took about 450 years. And after that, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. Then they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. And when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart, who will do all my will. Now he's going to leap forward a thousand years. It's a big move. He's helping them see their history because he wants them to understand what God is doing right now by looking back into the past. He's trying to show them what I'm trying to show you, that history is not a random series of events that happen to people and nations. God, the chess player, moves kings and empires and languages and cultures to his own will for one single purpose, to give people the privilege of hearing of his son, Jesus. So Paul leaps a thousand years from David's time to this, and he says this regarding Jesus. Of this man's offspring, in other words, from David, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus, as he promised. Before his coming, John had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And as John was finishing his course, he said, what do you suppose that I am? I am not he, no, but behold, after me one is coming, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. Here's the point. Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham and those among you who fear God, to us has been sent this message of salvation, the message of this salvation for those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him. And though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate, the Roman governor, to have him executed. 
And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. Do you understand what Paul's saying here so far? He's saying, listen, this has been read to us all of our lives in the synagogue. The promises and the prophecies of God have been laid in front of us from the time we were little children, but they didn't understand what God had written and what God was doing. So they took the one that he had promised, and though he had done absolutely nothing wrong, they slaughtered him on a tree, and they took him down from a Roman cross. But then, the biggest moment in human history, but God raised him from the dead. And for many days, he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who were now his witnesses to the people. Here's why Paul is in the synagogue. And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus as it is also written in the second psalm. Now he's going to reach back into his Bible, the Hebrew Scriptures, and read from the Psalms and the prophet Isaiah and say, you can look this up. You can read something from a thousand or seven hundred years ago and see that this is exactly what God promised. It was written in the second Psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. As for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken in this way. I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore, he says also in another psalm, you will not let your holy one see corruption. Now he's going to compare and contrast David, their greatest king, with Jesus, whom they killed. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. In other words, David was a great king, but he was also an ordinary man. When he died, they put him in a grave, and he stayed there. With Jesus, it's different. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, by Jesus, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. In other words, he's telling them something that every religious person in the world needs to hear. The rules cannot save you. The law of Moses showed the holiness of God and set the bar as high as the holiness of God itself, and people made the mistake of thinking they could reach that bar, and they couldn't. That's why Paul says, you have been freed by Jesus from the things that the law could never free you from. Every great religion in the world has a series of rules and invites its practitioners to follow the rules as best they can, and then we'll see if God accepts you. Then we'll see if you're absorbed into nirvana. Then we'll see if things get better for you. None of it works. And religious people find themselves always in one of two conditions, proud because they think they're making it, or hopeless because they realize they can't. And that's the point of the law of God. It should make you hopeless that you can ever save yourself so that when Jesus arrives, you say, finally, a Savior. That's what Paul's been trying to tell them. Now, I took a preaching class this summer, and my professor, who I love, is a really good Bible teacher. He'll be here in a couple of weeks to teach some things. He said, try to end on a positive note. When you're preaching... Understand, people's lives are hard. People respond better to positivity than to negativity, so try not to smash them over the head right before you send them home. <laughs> it's good advice, but I want you to see how Paul ended his sermon. Verse 40. He said, Beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. 
And he reads from their Bible. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish, for I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe even if one tells it to you. Is that negative or positive? It's kind of negative, right? But it's true. I'd rather have clarity and truthfulness than positivity and let people wander away not knowing what to do. What Paul is saying is, be careful. I'm setting life and death in front of you. I've explained Jesus to you. I just walked you, he would say, through our history so that you'll understand it all boils down to this. So be careful with your, resp- with your response. Let's see how they answered. As they went out, the people begged that these things might be told them the next Sabbath. So, did it work? Yeah, really good. I've never, in all my years preaching, I've never had anybody say after the sermon, please, please, please come back next Sunday. I guess I'll see you next Sunday. Okay. I guess, right? (laughs) They want to hear this again. And look what happens. After the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. That's the point. It's the grace of God, not the law which can save you. It's not the rules. It's not your best efforts. Paul, as a Pharisee, knows very well what's going to happen as soon as he leaves. People in the synagogue are going to say, that's a really nice message, but you better get circumcised. That's a really good message, but you better keep kosher. You better be here next Saturday on the Sabbath. You better observe all of these rules and all of these laws or God cannot possibly receive you. Paul says, no, continue in the grace of God. I will say to you as your fellow Christian, continue in the grace of God. It's our only hope. So people are going to come back and they're excited to hear it. The next Sabbath, verse 44, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. I mean, God's at work here. You see the chess master and all that he's done? He sent the most unlikely witness, a former enemy of Jesus, into the synagogue to open up the Scriptures he knew probably by heart and say, gentlemen, it all boils down to Jesus. And people can't get enough of it. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. Oh, man. That's so predictable because religious people love market share. And people who make the rules like to make more of them and tell them that you're not keeping you keeping it well enough. Grace destroys the whole system. Grace frees people. And they don't like it. So Paul has his own reaction. Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly saying it was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you. Since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we're turning to the Gentiles. For the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. That's quoted from Isaiah written 700 years earlier. In other words, Paul is experiencing an amazing revelation. The book he knew so well from childhood, the most distinguished of the Pharisees, all of the Hebrew Scriptures suddenly snapped together and made sense to him, and he had new light on them. He says this amazing thing. God was thinking of the nations all along. He never thought that saving us in Israel was enough. 
He always knew that he wanted to get his arms and his love around the entire world. So he says, respectfully, this is what respects does. It respects choices. You don't want to hear the message. We're turning to the Gentiles. What's the Gentile reaction? When the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. Wow. What is God doing? God is working in the hearts of the most unlikely people who grew up thinking the Jews were contemptible in a strange tribe with bad customs, serving a tribal deity that made no sense to them. God had appointed them to eternal life. In other words, God was choosing people from among that crowd who could hear this message and it would make sense to them. And if you're a Christian, if you genuinely follow Jesus, you remember the moment it made sense to you. You had no interest in it. God was dead to you. He may not have been dead. You may not have hated him, but he was just a second or third class subject of interest, and suddenly your heart was hungry. You needed to hear more. It made sense, and you responded. All of that is happening here, and we're living in these days. These are the days of the Gentiles. The gospel is racing around the world at an alarming, amazing, God-driven rate, bringing people to faith in Christ who have not heard of them ever in their lifetime. And for generations, people are hearing about Jesus everywhere and coming to faith in Him. And here is the moment, the hinge that God turns to make all that happen. And the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. But the Jews incited devout women of high standing and the leading men of the city stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of their district. One more Jewish gesture in this story. They shook off the dust from their feet against them. This is a Jewish gesture, a Jewish cultural symbol saying, you, you're telling us to leave, you're throwing us out. We're done here. We're moving on down the road. Maybe somebody down the road will listen to us. And they went to Iconium, and the disciples were filled. Check out what the disciples' life is characterized in the middle of all this action and energy. How were the disciples? They were filled with two things. What's it say? Joy. With joy and the Holy Spirit. Now, why is this story in the Bible? Let me tell you in the next 10 minutes. What this means, the reason this is here, the reason the Bible is, the book of Acts is outlined all the way to our day, so that the ends of the earth literally are being reached, and there are tribes that we didn't know existed a hundred years ago who are now praising Jesus in their own language with really interesting guys called ethnomusicologists who are going in studying their culture and studying their music to give them music in their own language so that they can worship God according to their own cultural preference. I mean, it's the most amazing thing in the world. All around the world, people are praising and singing Jesus that were raised not even to know that he existed. And when his name was mentioned, they were told it was all a myth and a lie. Why is this all happening? Because God said it would. And here's the point for cross point. The work of God is telling the whole world the good news of Jesus. That's what God's working on. You never in your life have to wonder what God is doing in the world. You may not understand it in your specific circumstances. I'm often at a loss for what God is doing with me on any particular Thursday. But here's the big picture. 
The chess master is moving everything in human history so that everyone will have an opportunity to hear about the saving name and power of his son Jesus. He moves empires and kings and armies and overthrows economies and changes literally world history so that people can hear about Jesus. What does that mean for Christians? That means that we take Jesus seriously and he says, you will be my witnesses. We align our lives as best we can with the very ordinary calling that God has given us in our family and in our profession to do what we can in our little post, in our little corner, so that the world hears the good news about Jesus. And I see from these disciples that that's going to take at Crosspoint three things. First of all, it's going to take joy. Because Jesus really can save anyone who hears the gospel. Anyone. That family member you've given up on, the one maybe who used to believe but whose lifestyle now embarrasses you, you've hidden them on Facebook because it's just so horrible, Jesus can save them. He doesn't want them to live that way. He doesn't want them to deny him. God is patient with us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. That's how Peter explained it. And all of this is not driven by duty. It's driven by joy. See, if we come across as dreary, drudge-filled, well, Jesus told us to talk about him. Well, thanks a lot. (laughs) I mean, my goodness, he's the Savior of the world, and he's a good Savior, He's filled with grace and love and joy and peace and holiness and goodness and justice for all who come to trust Him. Jesus can save anybody who trusts Him and save them from the crushing burden of religion, and we know Him. And we don't have to argue people into it. You saw it. If people don't want to hear it, we move on. Paul did. He gave them a very clear witness, and when he was rejected, he didn't get upset and take his ball and go home. He went forward with joy because God had other people somewhere who would listen like the first crowd on the first Saturday did. So be joyful. If you've got a hangdog, lousy attitude, okay, you're out of step with Jesus. Jesus is not a drudge-filled, long-faced Savior. He himself is joyful. It's part of the fruit of the Holy Spirit, remember? Remember? What the life that God produces is love, and the very next one is joy. But it takes more than joy. It also takes courage because this message will be rejected. And a lot of times that's why we grow quiet. We know that if we tell people clearly about Jesus, we'll experience what Paul experienced. Not everyone will want to hear it. Some people will shut you up. And can I tell you something? That's okay. There's mutual respect. But it takes courage to mention his name. If I could be very personal and very practical, what I see in the American church as society becomes more and more secular and less and less friendly to God in general is people are willing to do good work but never mention his name. And that's not good enough. Good work is good work, but it stops short of being Christian work until Jesus is given as the reason and the source. 
If you don't come to the cross and the resurrection, it may be good work, and that's good, but it's not Christian work because it doesn't point to Jesus. The early Christian church was famous for good work. They rescued babies out of the trash in the Roman Empire because life was considered disposable. Their influence destroyed the Roman practice of gladiator fights that were barbaric and let men die in front of people bleeding out in a Colosseum merely for people's entertainment. The life, the influence, the holiness, the prayers of Christians brought that to a halt. And in all of that, they willingly wore that name because they wanted people to know why they did those good deeds. But that takes courage to take people all the way to identifying yourself as the one who believes that Jesus actually died on the cross and rose from the grave. And finally, it takes faithfulness. You have to be faithful. Because God really does want us to tell this good news, and it's spreading everywhere. Two weeks ago, I met with a man who walked away from a very good lifestyle to help, support, and encourage, and spend a great deal of his time in India. He told me the most remarkable story. He said their particular mission, and I hope to introduce you to him or one of his co-workers in the next few months, work with the lowest caste, what are normally called the untouchables in India. He said in their province, which is very large, it's larger than many nations in the world, they've seen in the last 10 years or so of work, they've seen the population of Christians in that giant province go from 5% to 15%. And here's what's happening among the so-called untouchables. Because they're untouchable, the government of India sends them a monthly stipend because their lives are so desperately poor. Well, when they convert and become Christians... The government, which is pretty good sometimes at cutting off benefits at fine reasons, says, hey, guess what? You're no longer an untouchable. You're now a Christian. So guess what they do? There went the stipend. Nothing has changed about their prospects. They're still on the lowest rung of society. They're still confined in the menial labor that their family has had for generations. Nothing improves physically except their government stipend gets cut off, and they are still coming to Christ by the many thousands. Now, why does that happen? Because Jesus didn't lie when he said that he would raise up people to be his witnesses, beginning in their local cities all the way to the end of the earth. I read a columnist a couple weeks ago. I was reading politics, and she said, you know, this election needs to go the right way because America is the last hope of Christianity in the world. And I laughed out loud and thought, thank God that's not true. The chess master's not out of moves. He's not reduced to us. Actually, the faith and the name and the glory of Jesus is expanding exponentially in many places. It can here as well if Christians will take their Savior seriously. So what am I inviting you to do? I'm inviting you to start in your Jerusalem because you have names and faces of people you dearly love who are far from the Lord. You also have talents and resources that can be organized with a little priority and a little sacrifice on your part to send messengers to places you cannot and will not go yourself. We can make a difference because the work of God is to spread the good news of Jesus everywhere in the world. Will you pray with me, please? I want to make this as personal as I possibly can. I want to talk to you first if you're not absolutely sure of your relationship with God, 
if you're not sure your sins are forgiven, you're the greatest priority in this room this morning. No one matters to me or to God more than you do. If you're not absolutely certain that Jesus is your Savior, if your sins aren't forgiven, if your conscience isn't clear, my invitation to you right now is to turn to Him and say, Jesus, I am so sorry for my sin. I've tried to keep the rules. I've tried to be a good guy. I've done the best I can, but I cannot save myself. I get that. I've tried and failed. Please save me. Save me from my sins. Save me from myself. And the Savior of the world will do just that. That's why he came. That's why he died. That's why he rose again. If you're not sure of your relationship with him, make sure and let us know the decision you're making on that connection card. And if you are a Christian, if you know the Lord, I'm going to give you a moment to think of those names and faces of people you care about who you're not sure or you know are far from God and pray for them and ask God to give you joy and courage and faithfulness as He opens up opportunities, and He will, to point them to Him. It's not your job to talk them into anything. You don't have to argue or shame them into anything. That's not God's work. Your work is to be a witness. That's all I've tried to do this morning, to be a witness to you, to commend Jesus to you, to put Him in front of you so that everyone here, according to your need, will trust Him. I pray that you will right now, and if you do, that you'll let us know. Father, I know the people on, in my life, on my block, in my neighborhood, all kinds of people around you. I don't know all their stories. I haven't taken the time, the courage to get them, know them well enough. But you love them, and if they're far from you, you want them back. I pray, God, that even now, as I'm praying aloud, you would bring names and faces to people's minds and point out to them that those are the ones who need to receive their witness, hear your story through their lives. If there's anyone here who doesn't know you and is absolutely sure of it, I pray that right now you would work in their heart, that they would be one of those appointed to life, that you would draw them to yourself, and that they would find out what hundreds of people in this church already know, that it's all true, and you're a great Savior pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.